Okay, we have made it to the last episode or so episodes, cultural property and a reckoning. That will finish off the reading of The Lady in Gold, The Extraordinary Tale of Gustav Klimt's Masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Blockbauer, written by Anne-Marie O'Connor. And I can't believe it's been over a year, just over a year since I started this book, reading it out loud, a few, a chapter or two at a time. And I'm sorry about the reading quality, but I really did want to just do it, you know, pretty much uh, without a lot of practice. I didn't do any rereading of it before, uh, or pre-reading, I should say. And I had to stop a couple of times to um, look up the word. <laughs> well, I didn't stop inside the reading, but afterwards I had to look at the words and then I had to re try to correct my pronunciation of some things. It's been quite a challenge for me to read this book aloud. Um, normally, I probably would have taken a lot more time and looked up a many of the different notations that uh, the author has put in the back. She has a selected bi bibliography for her research and she has notes on all the pages. And um, so, but that would have taken a lot longer for me to go into some of that in, during the readings. But I, I would encourage you to pick this book up if it's interested you. I know it's a long, dense book of the history in, in Germany and Vienna, um, but uh, I found it quite fascinating. I hope to uh, pick up something else a little bit different the next time I choose to read something aloud. But let's get to the point of finishing the book. First chapter is called Cultural Property. What was left of Adele Blockbauer in the Austria that clung to her as indispensable... No, sorry, it starts out with a question, so sorry. See, this is what happens to me. What was left of Adele Blockbauer in Austria that clung to her as indispensable cultural property? There was little trace at the drafty old palais at, on the Elisabethstrasse. The cubicle partitions of the Austrian train headquarters had cut her elegant salon to pieces. Plaster moldings and ornamentation had been ripped out in what struck Randall's Vienna partner, Stefan Gulnar, as a Freudian desire to ravage the Palais, to strip this Jewish mansion to its bones. An underground parking garage marred a view of the pretty Schillerplatz. Rusty bullet holes pocked the metal door into the attic, a relic, perhaps, of Red Army troops searching for fugitive Nazis and Wehrmacht soldiers. When the mansion was marked for restitution, Ron Lauder was advised not to buy it. It had too much integrity. It had, sorry, I messed up. I totally went, skipped over the word lost. It had lost too much integrity. The gutted old place posed another question. What would have become of an aging Adele had she stayed? Would she have been driven to exile, despair, and death like other Jewish models of Klimt? Whatever her conceivable fate, 
there was nothing left of her here. But in this country of the beautiful corpse, the relationship to the dead, like the past, was intimate. So I set out to visit Adele Blockbauer's grave on the chilly gray morning of All Saints' Day. A miserable drizzle was falling on Vienna's peaked mansard roofs when I reached Vienna's central cemetery. A who's who were the graves of handsome Karl Luger, Karl Renner, and Kurt Waldheim, mingled with those of Beethoven, Brahms, Schoenberg, and Johann Strauss. Father and Son Here angels beckoned from elaborate family mausoleums, their ceilings painted like the Sistine Chapel, with mortals reaching for the divine. Adele was not in the celebrity directory. At the administration office, a a stout matron wearing a cap of short gray hair and a severe expression frowned at the name of Adele Blockbauer. Judish? Judish? Nine. Not here, she announced loudly, shaking her head. It is a Jewish grave. She is in Dobling. I insisted. She sighed with exasperation. A younger, bespectacled gentleman went to a computer and came back with a printout for an Adele Bauer at the Dobling Cemetery, cemetery across town. The matron plopped the, brown, the paper down triumphantly. The model of Klimt, I asked. She's not here, the young man insisted. Was it possible the subject of the most expensive painting in the world had passed unnoticed? Perhaps in Vienna, so frozen in time, yet with such a complicated relationship with its past. I said I would walk to the crematorium and have a look. The matron matron threw up her hands. I walked toward the white art deco gates of the cemetery for the cremated. Chestnuts and potatoes roasted on open fires in the parking lot, giving off tantalizing garlic and salt aroma. The complex complex was a maze at was a maze as thickly wooded as the Black Forest. There was a narrow dirt path along a mock castle wall. Above, a black raven cried loudly as it flew from treetop to treetop. I was about to turn back when I became when I came upon the stark gray, the stark black gray granite plaque lettered in gold, Adele Blockbar. Beneath it was dry brown stems of long-dead flowers, mercifully upstaged by a lush green wild fern, as if nature itself had stepped in to celebrate this forgotten grave. The ledge held a rusted votive. Here, unadorned and obscure, lay the remains of Adele. Someone in Vienna honored Adele's memory. The cemetery in Heitzing, the district where Klimt had his last studio was a stroll through the century. Bronze angels and roses decorated the grave of Katharina Schrott, Emperor Franz Joseph's mistress, near the remains of Karl Renner, the fickle opportunist. Klimt's good friend of Klimt's good friend Egon Schiele rested with his wife nearby. The remains of Elizabeth Bockenfen Echt and her handicapped son lay not far from those of Gustav Uchiki, her alleged half-brother. Close by 
where her brother Eric Lederer was likely turning in his grave. Between two weeping birch trees, there was a small arched brown marble headstone with Art Nouveau lettering, Gustav Klimt. At its center was the face of Adele from the gold portrait, no larger than a playing card, laminated against rain and snow. Adele seemed to stare up from Klimt's gray with pleading eyes like a holy card of Mary Magdalene between two burning candles. An older man appeared in a worn suede jacket with a ruddy, unlined face and began clipping the tiny hedge with blueberries that cradled the grave. I asked him about Adele's picture. It's not from me, he retorted vehemently. <laughs> Sorry, I just have, this is funny to me. I don't know why. Why is everybody so worried about if they're attached to this whole thing? I don't understand that. I mean, it's, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> was he related to Klimt? He looked up with piercing blue eyes. His glance was fierce and unsmiling. My grandmother was one of his models, he said finally. She is the girl in the Schubert painting. The painting was burned. Many, was, many were burned. It was terrible. The painting of Mitzi Zimmermann, torched at Schloss Immendorf. My father was the son of Klimt, he said finally. His name was Gustav Klimt. I mean, no, sorry. His name was Gustav Zimmermann. Gustav didn't get much out of being the grandson of Austria's most famous artist. His father was serving in World War I when Klimt died and was a sergeant in the German army when Gustav was born in 1939. Gustav had spent his life selling used cars. No one invited him to the Belvedere or to Klimt film premieres with John Malkovich. But for, the, but for years, Gustav had been a lone guardian of the Klimt myth. Klimt's Josefstrasse. Uh, <laughs> Let me say that again. But for years, Gustav had been a lone guardian of the Klimt myth. Klimt's Josefstrasse studio had been torn down years before. Gustav was a member of a small community group that had saved Klimt's last studio, not far from the cemetery, from being raised to make way for a shopping mall. His grandmother told him she was already pregnant at the time of the Schubert painting. She was very, she was very young. He liked young girls, he said ruefully. He was surely not a bad man, but a really good man? I don't know. Gustav was helping organize an exhibition of Klimt's letters to Mitzi. He invited Gustav Uchiki's widow, Ursula, but she blew him off. Probably she's afraid of being asked about the Nazi period and her husband, and she has all those paintings. People are asking questions about paintings like that nowadays, he said, raising his eyebrows meaningfully. He looked at the picture of Adele, yellowed by rain and sun. A warm phone rind was blowing in from the southern Alps, pushing away the clouds and melting the snow. 
Suddenly the cemetery glowed with sunlight. Later over dinner at a restaurant overlooking a cobblestone street near St. Stephen's Cathedral, Gustav spoke of the difficulties of Mitzi's life as a single mother. She had another son with Klimt, Otto. When little Otto died, Klimt blamed her for not taking him to the doctor soon enough. Gustav studied a picture of Mitzi in the Schubert painting, reproduced in a book on the table, alongside his collection for her le- of her letters from Klimt. It was painful for Austria to lose those paintings, Gustav said, but it was just. I think Adele's will was finally interpreted in the right way, because it was clear that Ferdinand Blockbauer bought the paintings of his wife. He paid for them, and it was clear they were his. If Adele had lived longer, she would have changed her will a thousand times had she known what was to come. His bright blue eyes were thoughtful. The funny thing is, the Belvedere didn't even want most of those paintings in 1938, Gustav said. They made the deal with Uchiki where they sold the paintings to pay for the ones they wanted. It's like a crime story. The truth is, if it weren't for the restitutions, Austrians would have never known anything about Adele Blockbar. For Gustav, the only mystery left was the nature of the relationship between Adele and his grandfather. There's no way of knowing, he said. He smiled and cocked an eyebrow. I'm certain he tried. The next and last chapter is called A Reckoning. For Maria, the family rift with Nellie over the paintings was another of that unwelcome of the unwelcome novelties she had taken to calling the curse of the Klimps. Things like her inability to get around her house without a cane, or people who wanted to give who wanted her to give them money. Maria was ninety one. She no longer embraced change. She waved away suggestions she give her house a makeover, and still left the front door unlocked even when she napped. Nellie and I used to be so close, Maria said sadly. I remember when she was born, I cried. We were like this, she said, holding up. We were like this, she said, holding up two intertwined fingers. Now, that's all gone. Nellie wanted to donate the second Adele portrait to the New Egg Gallery to hang alongside the gold portrait, but Maria's son Chuck said it couldn't be done. There were five heirs. George Bentley, the newborn carried by Robert and Taya when they escaped Vienna, shared Robert's stake with Trevor Mantle, a nephew of Robert's second wife. The heir who wanted a donation would have to come up with enough money to cover Randall's 40% contingency fee for the value of the second portrait of Adele. The Altmans were not sophisticated Rockefellers. They were a middle-class emigre family with bitter memories. None of them were ever certain they would get the paintings back, but they did. And this was the math. A life-changing sum was on the table. If it wasn't about the money, wait, if it wasn't about the money before, now the money was an unavoidable reality. It seemed ever more unlikely that they would make the grand gesture of a donation. In fact, few heirs of Vienna restitutions did make donations. 
They usually sold the paintings. Some insiders were disappointed. How sad, if unsurprising, to hear that their heir, the heirs of Fernandad and Adele Blockbauer were, are indeed cashing in as planned and selling four climps at Christie's in November, wrote the New York Times art critic Michael Kimmelman. A story about art and redemption after the Holocaust has devolved into yet another tale of crazy, intoxicating art market. Had the family left a painting in public hands, Kimmelman wrote, they would have underscored the righteousness of their battle for restitution and in the process made clear that art, even in those money-mad days, isn't only about the money. In Vienna, even the most diplomatic Austrian officials were openly dismayed. This was our Austrian Mona Lisa, lamented Werner Fernsen, the director of the Culture, Culture Ministries Commission for Provenance Research. Fernsen was a genteel, old-fashioned man. His office was at the Imperial Hofburg with a window overlooking a cobblestone courtyard where an enormous stone, Hercules, was clubbing what seemed to be a lion. Fernsen had impeccable manners, but the auction of the Blockbauer Klimps had clearly punctured his old-world reserve. The auction houses are waiting for important pieces of art to come on the market. There is a market being made by the claims of the victims of the Nazi regime. It's not only in Austria, it's Germany, it's the Netherlands, it's Poland, it's everywhere, he said. There are too many people making money from it. As soon as a work of art is, res is restituted, the new heirs can do as they like. It's money. They do not have the same sentimental approach as their grandparents, Fernson said. These paintings were loved here. The public should see these paintings, not put one in some basement in Tokyo. It's crazy. Maria said she didn't care if the Austrians were upset. We lent them those paintings for 68 years, she said hotly. They had a chance to buy them. The deepening rift, the deepening tift, no, it's rift, sorry. I'm having trouble here. One second, let me do something here with my, okay, here we go again. The deepening rift with Nellie was another story. It saddened Maria and sometimes made her angry. How dare you accuse me of only caring about money, Maria wrote Nellie one day. I told you I offered to donate the portraits of Adele, but the Austrians did not respond. Nellie, you lost perspective on what happened. Austria was not a victim. When Maria told the Austrians that the Nazis had stolen the paintings, Austria insisted it was a gift, Maria wrote. If it wasn't for Randall, the paintings would still be in the Belvedere with no proper explanation. Nellie was furious. She found it insulting to be told she was on the wrong side of history. She was uncomfortable even visiting Vienna because of her World War II ordeal. She felt her, she felt her Los Angeles family disregarded her feelings. She refused to take a share in the restitution of the Elizabeth Strauss, Elizabeth Strauss House of Adele. My mother never wanted to dig up all of this, but having it dug up, she wants to do right by Adele, Nellie's daughter. Maria Harris said she would never have chosen to dig it up because she lived, in, lived it most deeply. 
It was the past that robbed Nellie of her childhood. As with Maria, it swept her, it swept away her world, took her father, nearly cost her life. For Nellie, this past was a dark well of psychic pain. For Maria, it was an unaddressed injustice. Nellie wanted peace. Maria wanted atonement, recognition of a world swept away, an act of contrition. How was Adele best honored? If Maria and Randall had not fought for the paintings, no one would ever know Adele's story. But the paintings were slipping away. For Maria, her long-awaited reckoning would end at the Christie's auction in New York. In a way, she the auction was Maria's divorce, the final splashy denouement of her betrayed love for Austria. Marie was a celebrity in the art world. When her long limousine pulled up to Christie's in Manhattan on the afternoon of the auction, photographers lined up like paparazzi, speaking in French, German, British accents. A doorman held red roses, blowing kisses and sporting a movie star smile. Maria swept past a king's ransom of art. A corpulent nude woman gazed down from a botrero. A Mexican peasant labored in a Diego Rivera. And a translucent fish and crabs swam on iridescent purple and green lalique vases. The Blockbauer Klimps hung in a room decorated like Joseph Hoffman's succession chamber. Mrs. Altman, congratulations on the final chapter of this story, a young reporter said. But why, he asked, are you not making a single donation to a museum? That's a difficult question, Maria began carefully as Randall stood behind her, thumbing his blackberry. I'm one of several heirs. We decided to go ahead with the sale. Ronald Lauder showed Maria to his private auction box. He was giving... He was going to try to get the second portrait of Adele tonight. Maria's family was sold. Was told. Gosh. My eyeballs. Oh my gosh. Below her were wealthy buyers. A man with spiky bleached hair and a Warhol Campbell suit t-shirt. A handsome brunette with black leather pants and a white t-shirt with his hair piled up Amadeus style above theatrically haunted eyes, looked looking as a rumple as rumpled as if he just rolled out of someone's bed. A fragile looking elderly man, gentleman in cowboy getup walked by a woman garbed in what appeared to be Tibetan robes. A lady at least sixty years old wore black leather pants and a fuchsia T shirt. A man wandered by in an antique monocle, and a woman hid behind enormous sunglasses like Jean-Luc Jean Jean Goddard, a gammon barely out of her teens, settled onto, into a prime bidding spot in jeans, keds, and a sweater tied around her waist. This was a spe spectator sport for rich people. There were waves, air kisses, helos mouthed, or hellos mouthed. Oh, <laughs> that's, it was, um, what do you call that? When they, they wrap the corner of a sentence with a hyphenated word that shouldn't be hyphenated <laughs> at all. <laughs> anyway, whatever. There were waves, air kisses, 
hellos mouthed across the room. Absolutely, they're going to they're going to take no prisoners, a florid white-haired man in navy pinstripes shouted into a cell phone. Into this rather unseemly orgy of art and commerce stepped the auction world's equivalent of heavy artillery. Artillery. Christopher Burge, an honorary chairman of Christie's, sipped, sipping three fingers of scotch. Behind him, as in, this, as in a stock market, was a monitor to translate prices into euros, Swiss francs, Japanese yen, and British and Hong Kong pounds. The jaunty Burge and his crisp British accent went a long way toward dignifying this Costco-like jumbo sale. One of the first items up was a Picasso tomato plant. The eager bidders quickly eclipsed the pre-sale estimate of, a, of up to seven million. Do I hear 12 million? Burge chipped, chirped brightly just before the painting sold for 13.4 million. This seemed to set the high-flying tone. <clears throat> a tiny silver... <laughs> a tiny sliver. <laughs> see how I, uh, I think I see things dyslexically a lot. Sorry for that. Uh, that was a, a new observation for me in reading uh, in this, probably this last six months, I noticed I was really dy dyslexically reading. Okay, that's neither here nor there. A tiny sliver of hammered green metal on a wooden base was presented at Le Jambe, or, Le, or the leg, by Alberto Giacometti. Giacometti. <laughs> a pre-sale. How, how bad can I screw up this chapter? The last one, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Okay, let's get back to this. It had a pre-sale estimate of, about, of up to 2.5 million, but in a few giddy seconds, the tiny leg <laughs> went for 7.9 million. Finally, the Klimps. Maria leaned forward as they offered Birch Forest, which she said was covered by Microsoft founder Paul Allen. In less than a minute, bidding climbed to 28 million, 30 million, all yours at 36 million. Murmurs rippled through the crowd. Klimt's painting of the Odyssey shot up to 28 million. His apple tree, like a, cup, like a cupcake of delight, Burge trilled, selling to you, Thomas, at 29.5 million. Now the second portrait of the mortal Adele with smoke-stained teeth. Feverish bidding pushed up the price in seconds. You see, 60 million, Burge baited. You see, a handsome blonde with sculpted cheekbones who looked like a sane, well-groomed Klaus Kinski. 69 million, you see. Pedro, 70 million. You see, 70.5 million. Lauder stopped bidding. A dark horse pulled ahead of the pack. It goes to the bidder at 78.5 million. Burge said with surprise as the two bidders, an older man and woman, hurried out. In six minutes, Fernand, Fernand and Adele's climps were gone. Hmm. Everyone jumped to their feet for a standing ovation. The auction total in a rec in a, is a record 49... Sorry. 491 million, Burge told reporters, the most extraordinary auction I've been involved with in my career. It was a return to the extraordinary period of the 1980s. It's 200 million more than the highest sale ever held. A Christie's press agent 
read Maria's statement. My Aunt Adele and Uncle Ferdinand enjoyed living with these paintings and sharing them, and we trust the new owners will continue this tradition. The fairy tale had ended. We were lucky to have the works of art because of restitution, so we have to be sensitive to the issue, Christie's Stefan Lausch was saying to an older woman he introduced to Maria's grandson, Philip Altman, and his wife, Tanya. Your paintings are really lovely, Lash told them. We hope to get to see them again, Tanya said. Lash raised his hands. Who knows, he said, who knows? Maria said she turned to Lash and was surprised to see his eyes filled with tears. The gavel prices for the four clips sold at the auction totaled $192.7 million. The proceeds combined with the $135 million sale of the gold portrait would be divided among Randall and the five heirs. Life had changed for the heirs of Adele and Ferdinand and for the lawyer who had found jurisdiction in a museum guide. Weeks later, back in Los Angeles, the phone rang. It was Maria. Did Adele's portrait go to that man who put the hole in the Picasso, Maria asked. It took a moment to realize Maria meant Steve Wynn, the Vegas hotel baron who accidentally poked his elbow through the 139 million painting of Picasso's 21-year-old mistress, Le Reve, who, while showing it off to celebrities. I wonder if Paul Allen got Birch Forest, she mused. Maria had promised Nellie she would find out who bought the paintings and persuade the buyer to loan them for public exhibition, but she said Lush wouldn't reveal their names. The paintings had disappeared, confirming Nellie's worst fears. No one knew who had bought Adele Blockbauer to second, or the second apple tree, birch forest, or houses in Unterach on Lake Odyssey. If... Adele knew the fate of the Klimt paintings, Nellie said she would be heartbroken. A couple of months later, it was clear that Maria, too, might never find peace on the issue. I don't want to ask Nellie for forgiveness, Maria said over dinner as her, at her favorite Italian restaurant near the old Burton Way dress shop. If she was so against this, then why did she take the money? I did, not, did nothing to forgive. Maria was pensive. What would Adele think, she asked. She loved Austria, but which Austria? The Austria of music, art, and philosophy? Or the murderous, greedy Austria, eager to hang on to palaces, paintings, books, even knives and forks stolen from families that were exiled and murdered? Maria sighed with a century of weariness. I don't know, she said finally. In the end, many things led to the restitution of the Blockbauer Klimps. There was the coming of age of a younger generation of Austrians who felt more curiosity than shame. Austria was assuming presidency of the European Union in 2006, casting a spotlight on its perpetually unfinished business. There was the burden of history. There was the higher moral standard demanding, demanded by the living victims of an unprecedented historic crime. In the days of Napoleon, war meant booty. It was accepted to the victor, went the spoils. Now people were disturbed by art taken by force and kept by deception. Restitution cases were now judged in the court of public opinion. 
The world of today was shocked to discover that even one of the women painted by Klimt was sent at gunpoint to a place where families burned in ovens. The rarefied art world seemed an unlikely stage for the reenactment of a drama steeped in love and blood. Once again, the Lady in Gold was reborn. The portrait had been created, stolen, renamed, consigned to a shadowy underworld. It had miraculously eluded the inferno of war. A man who had seen Adele and never forgotten her paid $135 million to buy her, legally, for the first time. Adele was now legend. Restitution had introduced Gustav Klimt to the world. The compulsive reproduction of the kiss had made him blandly ubiquitous. The artist was now revealed not as a purveyor of easy beauty, but as a deeply flawed man who nevertheless faced the biggest ethnic question of his day and emerged righteous. Long after his death, his art had opened eyes and minds. He had finally changed the world. Maybe this was Klimt's true kiss to the whole world. Perhaps no one would ever agree whether the Austrian Mona Lisa belonged to Vienna or to the exiled creators of the insulted culture that produced her, whether Adele represented the glittering aspirations of -of turn-of-the-century Vienna or the sacking of everything that made Vienna shine. Adele's life was a triumph of Jewish assimilation, but her portrait was a relic of assimilation's tragic failure. Adele symbolized one of the most brilliant moments in time, but also one of the world's greatest thefts of all that was lost when one woman and an entire people were stripped of their identity, their dignity, and their lives. What is the meaning of justice when law is used to legalize thievery and murder? What is the meaning of cultural property when patrimony is an arm of genocide? What is the value of a painting that has come to evoke the theft of six million lives? The public wrangle seemed seemed a strange fate for a work of art so intimate. The portrait of Adele is not a field of lilies or a starry night. Here, in her naked eyes, lies a story that is more diary than novel. A painting comes from a time and place. Those who have heard the story of the portrait of Adele Blockbauer can never again see her as a lady in gold. Frozen in Vienna's golden moment, Adele achieved her dream of immortality far more than she ever could have imagined. And that is the power of art. And that is the end of the book. And there's some a page of acknowledgments that I'm not going to read. Um, and then, of course, the notes that I've talked about before that go throughout the entire book. Um, a total of uh, 295 pages. And I'm trying to remember the copyright of this story, but my first part of the book has since disappeared right now. It came out, it came unglued <laughs> from the binding and it's in another room. So, 
But um, if you ever do come across it either in a library or in a, book in a used bookstore or any bookstore, I would suggest you pick it up. Um, it's well-sourced, and I really want to thank Anne Marie O'Connor for putting it out there. All right, thanks for listening. Would love to hear from anybody. If they want to, you can leave me a message here on the podcast, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter, um, even on my webpage. You could reach out and talk about this if you wanted to. I think it's a great story. A hard story, but a great story. Thanks again. It was really fun reading this aloud.